good morning, Storyline. <laughs> it's so good to be together. Can we just, can we have a hand for our band again? They're just so good. Wow. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Now, I have to tell you that that original video is called Wedding Fails, and it's eight minutes long. And it took me forever to figure out which one uh, am I going to show you, you know, which versions, because I had to edit this thing down because all of the scenes, they're just horrible and so funny. So it is June, though, right? And it's wedding season. And I think we all have a funny wedding story. Everybody, right? We've seen it all. And I have dozens of funny wedding stories. But my favorite is from my senior year at Calvin College. I came back as a senior in that summer. Between my junior and senior year, we knew that our RA, Tim Bax, was going to be getting married. And he was going to come back and finish school. And he was a really great guy. Um, but when he returned to school that fall, Tim was walking around in a neck brace with two huge black eyes. And we're like, dude, you have got to tell us this story. So he invites us in. They're in married housing. And they sit down. They're so proud of this. It's like, what, is it, what, how, what happened, right? And so he sets us down. And he and his wife show us the wedding video. And Tim is there, you know, facing the bride and, you know, makes the the mistake of locking his knees and you know you see him doing this and he's just wobbling and you can see it coming for like minutes and finally he just passes out and falls backward like a tree like and he's like six foot five a big dutchman and you can't see it on the video but you can hear his head hitting the front pew it sounded like somebody hitting a home run with a baseball bat i mean it was just horrible and then all the crowd stands up and there's this gasp and then <laughs> the video goes dark for a second and then it clicks back on a, a couple seconds later and tim is now sitting in a chair <laughs> holding hands <laughs> for the rest of the service with his with his bride right and so i asked tim i'm like i don't get it like you i don't get it how do you have two black eyes and a neck brace from falling backwards and hitting your head he goes he smiles, and he actually goes, he goes, oh, no, this? He goes, for, uh, the wedding, I got a concussion. This is from the honeymoon. <laughs> he goes, so we had to put off our honeymoon until we recovered from the concussion, and then we went up north to my parents' lake cabin, and I was water skiing, wiped out, had this horrible wipeout, and the ski, like, went straight down into the water, and then shot back up and hit me right between the eyes. And then he says, with just like joy on his face, he goes, broken nose, two concussions, still married. <laughs> Tim was in love. And like our song said, when that is the case, nothing can break you down. Nothing can take you down. Now this morning, we're going to continue our read through the book of John. And before we dive into that, I wanted to take a second to give us a little bit more background because we didn't get into that last week with it being graduation Sunday. Um, because John is definitely trying to give us something wonderful in his account of the life of Jesus. And it's important that we see the way that he wants us, the framework that he's getting us for his biography of the life of Jesus. So we have copies of the book, like Bree said, out on the hub. Please grab one. So just like last summer's read, through the book of Luke, we are only just beginning to scratch the surface of the life of Jesus. In fact, at the end of the book of John, John admits that himself. Like, this is just the beginning. 
This is just the beginning. So I'm not up here trying to be the Bible answer man. As always, we are wondering together. I'm just wondering out loud, okay? So we're not going to be going through John verse by verse this summer. We're just going to be going one chapter per week, taking one small section of a chapter, and just taking a closer look at it. Just asking some questions out loud, and hopefully it inspires some great conversations. And I hope it will inspire us to, to pick up John and read through it ourselves. Now, as always, not only do I welcome and enjoy your comments and questions and insights, I actually count on them. So please keep those coming. It's one of my favorite things about my role in our community is to get the text messages and the, and the emails with uh, questions and ideas and insights from you all. So thank you so much for that. So John is one of four gospels in the New Testament, four biographies of the life of Jesus. The other three are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're very similar they're looking at Jesus basically from the same perspective, but John's perspective is, is quite different, actually. Now, most scholars agree that it was written around between the year 80 and 100, probably in the city of Ephesus, which is now um, in modern-day Turkey. And John was one of Jesus' first followers, one of Jesus' first 12 disciples. And it, it's by far the most theological and the most philosophical of all the Gospels, which is extra fun for me. So um, John is almost like, um, I read one, one commentator said, you have to look, read his, his account almost like it's a treasure hunt. Like he is leading us somewhere. And last week we looked at this verse from later in, in the book of John where he says, this is why I'm writing this to you. I'm writing this so that you will trust in Jesus. But the thing is, he's taking us there into that trust step by step. And he's doing it using clues in, in a way that are laid out for us to follow. So in chapter 1, he sets the scene with this great line, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's the Word of God becoming flesh. Or as one translation puts it, God moving into the neighborhood. I love that. This is known, by the way, as the incarnation, which just simply means to have flesh, to be with flesh. So last Sunday, we ended with a quick look at the very first recorded words of Jesus, of God with us, of God in the flesh, God in our neighborhood. Um, it's, and it's found at, near the end of John chapter 1. There's some young men who are, see Jesus. They're curious about Jesus. They're wondering about Jesus. They literally stand up and start to walk behind him. They're following him. Jesus stops, turns around, and he says, what do you want? What do you want? And so the first theme from the Gospel of John is all about God is here. And is this worth wanting? Is he worth wanting? And John is making the case. He is trying to help us to trust. And this is what we'll be exploring all summer together in the book of John. How does trusting in the grace of God, which is what John says his goal is, how does that cultivate a particular kind of life that Jesus calls the abundant life, also explained later in John? And is this worth wanting? Is it worth wanting? 
So we're coming out, I also want to remind us that we're coming out of a, a series, a long series, two months that we did on stages of faith. And so I want to remind us that there's a difference between believing in God's existence and trusting in God's goodness. The former really does very little for us in our lives from day to day. It doesn't give us much comfort or much inspiration. It, uh, it doesn't really help us on the bad days or inspire us on the good days. It may create some kind of transactional, like, religious connection with God or arrangement with God, but a trust in God's goodness for us creates a transformational relationship with God, which frees us and inspires us to participate with God on his mission to love the world right again. So this morning, we're going to move from Jesus's first recorded words in John 1 to Jesus's first recorded miracle in John chapter 2. And I, I want to invite us to all kind of just have this question running in the background, all right? How does this particular miracle help us to trust in God's goodness? To, to live in and to live out the, the abundant life of God. So this is what the Bible says in the book of John, chapter 2. There was a wedding in the town of Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his followers were asked to come to the wedding. When the wine was all gone, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what is that to you and to me? It is not time for me to work yet. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he says. Six stone jars were there, and these water jars were used in the Jewish cleansing ritual. Jesus said to the servants, fill those jars filled the jars with water, and they filled them to the top. Then he said, take out some of it and give it to the headmaster who's caring for the people. They took some to him, and the headmaster tasted the water that had become wine. He did not know where it came from, but the servants who took it to him knew. He called the man who had just been married, and, he, and the headmaster said to him, everyone puts out the best wine first. After people have had too much to drink, he puts out the wine that's not so good. But you've kept the good wine until now. This was the first miracle and sign Jesus did. And his followers put their trust in him. Now there are a lot of things that we could talk about here. We could literally spend all summer just on this one section of John chapter 2. But I think there are several things that we can begin to wonder about together here in this scene and so the first question that popped up for me is why this miracle this way first you only get one first miracle okay why this miracle this way first so jesus told the servants to take it to the headmaster now who is the headmaster we don't really use that word now but it's kind of like the master of ceremonies the hired life of the party the, the closest I could think of is like, think of a wedding planner and a DJ kind of smushed together at a reception, okay? This is the person that's hired to, to plan the party, to keep the party running, and to keep the reception moving forward. And, and receptions back then were a huge deal. Probably the whole village was there. It's a much bigger deal in that ancient culture than it is in our day today. So here's the thing. Someone at that party messed up bad and we all know what that feels like like something big is coming our way maybe it's good maybe it's difficult 
but we have all these plans, we have all these preparations, We've, we have all these resource, resources, we do all this research, we, we work really hard, uh, we have all of these hopes, and this huge event comes up, and all of our efforts, and all of our provisions fall short. Like, they weren't enough. We've all been there. We weren't enough. Now, interestingly, John says this is not just a miracle, it's a sign. It's one of these clues, okay? In other words, like, the miracle is not, this miracle is not just about water to wine or saving a party. There's much more going on here. And I think one of the things to consider is that Jesus is revealing himself as the headmaster, the master of the banquet. Now, scholars estimate that Jesus turned about 150 gallons of water to wine, the very best wine. The question is, why? And it's like he's trying to tell us, following him, yes, it is going to entail a lot of difficulty, a lot of sacrifice. Like we've been saying the last couple weeks, the love of God both frees us and constrains us. Jesus is constantly inviting us to serve, and that's hard sometimes. It's very hard. To make the way of Jesus a way of life is to constant or consistently be in positions where our time, where our talents, where our treasure are called upon for the good of others. So this is not a life centered on the self that Jesus is inviting us into. And yet, Jesus starts everything. He begins with the miracle that turns a flop of a party into the best celebration anyone has ever been to. It's like Jesus is saying, I come as Lord of the feast, the master of the banquet. Yes, there are other things that will be involved with following me, putting your faith in me. There's going to be some self-denial, some self-sacrifice. There's going to be some suffering. But please never forget, those things are just a means to the end. Never forget that this kind of celebration and joy is the goal. In fact, in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah talks about the goal of God like this. The Lord of hosts will throw a feast for all the people of the world, a feast of the finest foods, a feast with vintage wines. God will banish the doom hanging over all peoples, the shadow of doom darkening all nations. Yes, he'll banish death forever and God will wipe the tears from every face he'll remove every sign of disgrace from his people wherever they are when our experience is different than this in our real life as it can be so often Jesus's first miracle is a clue it's a reminder it's a sign this is not the way or the direction or the goal that God is leading us toward. So look, we're all just trying to do that, right? This is what life feels like all the time. We remember, we're trying to remember what it feels like to have a heartbeat, to not just go through life as ghosts, because, and here, here's why. We were made by the abundant love and life of God for the abundant love and life of God. And this first miracle of Jesus is a sign to us. It's a clue. It's like God saying, you can trust me. This 
this kind of joy and celebration and connection and heartbeat and love. This is what I want for you too. So how ironic and tragic is it that so many people avoid God and resist the life of faith because they think, you know, they've been led to believe that it's a drudgery or a chore and that in the end, it's about doing what God wants and what he wants is good for him, but maybe not so much for us. If there's any part of us that understands following Jesus this way, then we've been misled. And Jesus is confronting that misperception of God's intention from the very beginning with his very first clue, this miracle. You know, this is why it's so critically important that communities of faith in the grace of God make the world flow with wine and justice, with celebration and joy. Not fake, like, pretend perfection, where everyone's got their act together, but authentic joy, which can include the deep sorrow of deep disappointment in it. It can embrace that and still celebrate. Look, there are, there are reasons to walk away from God. There are reasons to reject the gospel of grace. But it being a chore or a bore is not one of them. You know, trusting in Jesus cultivates in us a heart that rejoices, a life that celebrates, a lifestyle that invites and is inviting. And when it doesn't, something is bad wrong. <laughs> One of my favorite lines, it should but it doesn't. Now, who wants to go to the dump? <laughs> that is a low bar, right? You know, people, but people do ask me all the time, like, why does... Why do your gatherings, why do the Storylines gatherings, why do they look and feel the way they do? Why the popular music? Why the, the art? Why the video clips and movie and TV clips? It's because we're trying to embody and act the joy, the deep engagement, the celebration, which is, that is the goal of God. That's the direction. That's the clues he's giving us towards where he's leading us. And when we're together, it it's needs to look and feel like that, genuinely. You know, last week we used an analogy that I actually got a lot of feedback about, so I want to kind of go over it again. I thought a lot of people really liked it, but that God is, is not a bad boss trying to get something from us. He's much more like a good doctor trying to give something to us. Our health, human flourishing, now, sometimes a good doctor's instructions are difficult. They're uncomfortable. But they're just a means to the end. They are how we get healthy, how we are transformed. Jesus came to be, in one, one analogy they use in, the, use in the Bible, is the great physician to make us whole. He is the master of the banquet to make the world run with wine with joy, with justice and goodness and flourishing. And this miracle tells us who he is, our guide into celebration and joy. And if, if we miss that somehow along the way, if someone or some church gave you another impression at all, then they were pitching a religion about Jesus, not the way of Jesus, 
himself. Now, this first miracle also makes us wonder about what he came to do. And like, like I just said, the Bible's full of analogies about how we can relate to God. And, and, you know, it's just so difficult to get our arms around, like, who is God and who are we and how does this work? So the Bible uses images of God as a king. And so, like, we're the subjects. God is a shepherd that makes us sheep. And, of course, God is a father that makes us children. And, and these are all helpful images but the most important image, the most instructive analogy frames God as a groom and his people as his bride. This is the level of love and intimacy and unity that God came to earth to establish with us. You know, at the end, that very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it's the same writer, the Apostle John, writing. He describes the end like this. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. What a cool image. Now, I've had the incredible honor to officiate dozens of weddings. Uh, unfortunately, I, d I don't do them anymore because they take so much time, but, and I just, I couldn't do them all. But it was just, um, but I hated to give it up because Every wedding puts me in a very special place, a place most men only get to stand in once in their lives, to see a bride walk toward you. And every time, I mean, just right now, it chokes me up even thinking about it because of the excitement, the energy, the love, the joy, the devotion and wonder that's just radiating from this groom seeing his bride walk toward him. Now, all eyes, literally, people stand up, they turn, all eyes are on the bride, and I, and I of course, see the bride, too, but I always look at the groom and the look on his face as a reminder of this is how God feels about us. This is what he came to do to establish a loving relationship with us. That kind of devotion and adoration and commitment and, and love that God has for us. And it, it's like a groom for his bride, and, but infinitely more. And this is why Jesus chooses these particular jars to hold his new wine. Talk about clues and signs. This is such a powerful sign, such a beautiful reason to trust in Jesus. Th these were huge water jars um, so that guests, when they arrive, could clean their hands and their feet and their face. But it wasn't primarily for hygiene. That's not what they were for, actually. Not primarily. It's not what they were for at all. They were for religious purity. To, to be included in the celebration, you had to be pure. You had to have, in other words, your act together. You had to do all the right things, all the right way. In other words, you had to deserve entrance into this celebration. That's how it worked. That's what the water in these particular jars were for. That's all they were for. By changing that water, and this is so cool, check this out. By changing that water of religion into wine, Jesus is indicating that the best religion can do is clean us up on the outside and just for a little while. It's like he's saying, what I'm offering you will get inside of you. It will give you a new spirit. It will transform what you love. 
what you desire, what you enjoy. And your joy will come not from having, not from how good you can make yourself look or how, how well you can clean yourself up or how, how good you perform or achieve. It will come from within you. And isn't that what's going on in a wedding? And if you really think about it, that's what the groom is marveling at. That's what I see in his face when he sees his bride walking toward him. As beautiful as the bride is for everyone to see, the groom really sees her. He's seen her not on her best days. He really sees all of her and he loves the beauty that's within her. You know, one of the things that we say often when we're together is that Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. He came to end them. And this first miracle shows this, I think, just so clearly. Think about it. For every guest who shows up after the miracle of Jesus, there's no longer any religious water to clean them up. They literally cannot perform the religious ritual. The religious ritual has been replaced by grace. Now, to join in the celebration, there's only one way in, and it isn't about us doing everything just right, not making any mistakes, going through the ritual, performing the ceremony. It's about accepting our acceptance. It's about drinking deeply of the joy of God's grace that he's freely giving to anyone who shows up, anyone who comes. This is who he is. He's the master of the banquet. And this is what he came to do, to transform us from the inside out, not with religion, but with grace, so that we will choose freely to walk down the aisle toward a loving relationship with the God who loves us. It's so cool. Two more brief wonderings about this first sign from Jesus. The, this first clue as to why it's good for us to trust that God is good for us. Remember, John's goal is not that we believe that God exists. It's that we will trust that God is good. And why is that? Because the invitation of Jesus is not to a new theological truths or doctrinal positions or statements of faith. It's not primarily about obeying a set of rules. That's pretty clear from this first miracle when Jesus completely upends what you had to do religiously to get in. It's not about performing this or that ceremony. The invitation of Jesus is to a feast flowing with wine, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a way of life that's honest about all that is wrong, but can still rejoice because we have the confidence in God's ultimate goal for us. And here's what this means. What we believe about God is more important than just believing he exists. See, the, there's one place in the Bible that says even the devil believed God exists. The issue is trusting in God because that changes how we live. That makes us willing participants, servants, in what God is doing in the world, in our lives, and through our lives together. Which, which leads us to our last observation about this first miracle of Jesus. How do we accept it? How do we drink in the joy of it? 
I forget how lame Christian Bale's voice is for Batman. <laughs> but the point is right on. The point is right on. We like to think, like Bruce Wayne, that our actions and lifestyle don't really have anything to do with who we really are. But Jesus is making a claim here in his inaugural miracle about who is really changed and transformed by his grace. And it's not about what you believe to be true. It's about how what we trust in leads us to live. Now think about this. For this wedding reception, all of the guests were right there in the middle of God's first miracle and had no idea, no clue whatsoever. They didn't see the sign. They drank the wine. They loved the wine. And they walked out of an evening with Jesus completely unchanged. But who did know? Who was transformed by this miracle? Who ended up placing their trust in Jesus? It was the servants. His followers and those who served the wine to others. In a brand new book called Wonder Drug, Dr. Stephen Treziak claims that the science is absolutely clear that serving others results in longer life, better cardiovascular health, slower aging, better willpower, more energy, better sleep, less depression and anxiety, more happiness and fulfillment, all with zero side effects. Now that's a miracle, right? Sounds like a miracle, doesn't it? And here's the thing. We want the miracles of God to like come for us, to come to us. And so maybe we wash ourselves up with religion or with whatever we think is going to make us, you know, acceptable to God. And then we wait and we hope for some miracle. But that isn't how grace works. The miracles come through us first. The miracles come through us first. The life of faith, a trusting God's goodness for us translates into our transformation through participation. That's how we accept the wine of God's grace, when we serve the wine of God's grace to others. John is inviting us to a trust in Jesus and his gospel of grace. That means living out, living differently because of our faith. This wedding, this feast, where Jesus replaces the water of religion with the wine of God's grace is a clue. It's a sign of God, of what God wants to do in us as we allow him to do this for others through us. This is how he takes our grapes of wrath and turns them into his wine of joy. Our grapes of wrath into the wine of God's joy. What an incredible invitation from God. I'm yours and you are mine. This is the first miracle. And it's not really about water to wine, is it? It's about changing religion into grace. There are so many wonderful things going on in John's account of the life of Jesus. You know, who is Jesus? 
What did he come to do? How do we receive it? What is worth wanting? Who is really drinking in the goodness of God? Those who get the miracle or those who give it? Next week, more incredible surprises from Jesus for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and for this opportunity to be together. We, th we thank you so much for taking our grapes of wrath, turning them into the wine of your joy and grace and offering it to us freely, replacing all of the religious systems and rituals and ceremonies that we use so futilely to try to clean ourselves up on the outside. God, I just pray that we would have the courage to accept, the faith to accept our acceptance. God, I pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for coming, folks. We'll see you next week.